and you know, I mean, I know that when I was a kid, I listened to Muddy Waters, I listened to Lightning Hopkins, I listened to guys like Dave Van Ronk, and I would learn how to play that shit or my own little version of it. Not as not as good, you know, as a fucking kid, but you know, and those records meant a lot to me. I remember the first time I heard Ray Charles, it was like a light coming on. I mean, the first time I saw Elvis, I'm old enough to have seen Elvis's first TV appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, that was life changing. Yeah. Oh fuck, are you kidding? You know, it was like, I was wishing my parents weren't in the room so I could like really act the way I wanted to act, you know? Hello and welcome to Here in LA, Carthay Circle Edition. Today we meet Greg Sutton. Greg is Michael from last week's Neighbor. Michael said, Tony, you gotta meet this guy who played with Bob Dylan in the 80s. And when he was a kid, his best friend was Andy Kaufman. I was like, what? And I was like, let's set up this interview. But Michael said, let's see if he'll do it right now. So he called and Greg said, come on over. And what you're about to hear is an edited version of our two hour conversation where we talk sex, drugs, and rock and roll, my people. So let me stop my yapping and let's get to it. I am here with Greg, what's your last name? Sutton. Greg Sutton in Carthay Circle. Greg, you are a musician. You are uh, uh, an artist is what it looks like too. Well, these are, no, I'm a musician and a songwriter. These were my late wife's paintings. She was a fabulous artist. Wow. And, uh, you know, we've lived here for like 30 years. Well, I've lived here. She's been dead for nine years, but... You know, I mean, her, she was a great artist, and, uh, you know, here I am, you know. I, do I hear a New York accent? I'm from, yeah, you do. I'm from New York City. I was born in uh, New York, and then my family moved to the suburbs, a, a little town called Great Neck, which is uh, where I met the comedian Andy Kaufman. What? He, he was my best friend in the fourth grade, and we remained best friends our entire lives, and I was Andy's musical director and one of his conspirators. I was the conductor at Carnegie Hall and traveled with him and, you know, would occasionally remind him when he was wrestling women, I would say, go over and say, I would tap my imaginary watch because I could never wear a watch. And so I tap my left hand and say, Andy, you know, this is time, pal. And I said, get up. He says, I can't. He was hurt? No. What was the problem? He was excited. Andy! <laughs> he was physically excited as a man to wrestle That's these women. That's why he did it. You he know, got sexually turned on wrestling these women? Yeah. He, this was during what I would call Andy's fat Elvis years. Right. Where he had already, like, he had made it big, and now he was like, you know, and, and he enjoyed doing this kind of thing, sort of like, you know, having his pleasure with the audience anyway. And he would go through this whole act of, you know, acting like the asshole, you know, making women mad at him. Andy, I think you really hurt her. It doesn't matter. She doesn't have any money. She's poor. She can't sue me. But the real deal was, like, once he got him down on the ground, they'd roll around, and he would, you know, I mean, he would just get a little bit excited sometimes, you know, but, 
but and it was like the you know it was like for him it was like oh i'm i'm elvis i'm like you know whatever getting blowjobs backstage or shooting up and coming out or eating you know what i mean it was part of his whole elvis routine and also you, you, i mean andy was you you got to dig that andy made it on a huge fucking level i mean how many people do shows at carnegie hall right and when he was a kid he was the oddest kid in our school and his parents had already sent him to a psychiatrist by the time i met him and he showed me the prognosis and the psychiatrist said this kid will be lucky to get out of the 6th grade there's basically no hope for this kid you know and his parents you know that's his first psychiatric at because the age of his of, mental uh, because he was issues? so he was so on another plane like you know we'd play softball and andy would play right field because you know i mean that's where nobody hit the ball to right field but he would be out there like doing his sticks you know pre pretending there was a camera in the you know and even in fourth grade oh yeah in fourth grade and the day i met him i mean i had known him but uh, olatunji the african drummer came and did a recital at our school the baker hill school and me and Andy were sitting next to each other in the first row just by accident because we were both in the 4th grade and we were both so excited by it and that was the day that Andy's fascination with congress started i know it for a fact but we became best friends that day because we both were like just so excited and all the other kids were going you know what's what's going on here you know so so when he did that conga thing on SNL it wasn't just a bit <laughs> He loved congas and he'd been playing congas his entire life. He was actually good. You ask any drummer or percussionist, his time was good, his hands were fast, he had he had really good technique. Also as a singer, he was better than the average Elvis. I mean Elvis thought he did the best one. And we gave him, you know, I mean the band gave we gave him the real shit because it was all like real rock and roll musicians and wasn't the Tonight Show band, you know, but uh he was for real. But I'm, it was also funny because he kind of like David oh, Byrne like his he, ultimate white guy playing this like Oh, he was so funny and he had so many different characters and he didn't really care if he got laughs. I mean, he was like a master of reality of uh, now you think it's this. Well, I'm going to just tug the rug out and now you see this. Okay, uh, so know. so when so you were he, he was a genius. When you were in fourth grade and you and you met him, you see him in school. Yeah, are you instantly attracted to him because he's such a freaky dude, or are you kind of turned no, off? No, no, he was just another kid, you know. And but that day, I found out he was, you know, we had a lot in common. We also talked about Elvis, how much we loved Elvis, and we're so sad that he was in the army. And we talked about, oh yeah, you know, the original version of. One night of sin. One night of sin. We were kind of advanced rock and rollers. Yeah. And I had no idea that he was, a, you know, but we both loved Elvis. So we became best friends. And then I moved back to New York and he got in touch. He came by my house one night. He used to go to this museum called Hubert's Museum. It was in Times Square, which was really a honky tonk, you know. It was a museum of freaks, human freaks. 
and he was a regular there. Anyway, he came by my house, and he said, we were 14, and he says, hi, remember me? It's Andy. And we started hanging out. My cousin lived in the same building, so we're all three hanging out, and he says, well, you got to come out to Great Neck and, you know, bring your guitars. There's lots of pretty girls and, you know, blah, blah, blah. At, at 14, were you a good guitar player? I was not a good guitar player, but I... <laughs> I had a very nice Gibson Everly Brothers guitar, and I could play a little. I mean, a big I, acoustic. Yeah, big acoustic, which is just still. I mean, I don't have my Everly Brothers, but mm -hmm. I use big acoustic guitars. That's my mini Martin. So you but, knew enough to impress the girls at fourteen. Well, that's what what music's about, anyway. I mean, the kind of music I play, especially is sort of blues oriented, R and B oriented. It's about sex, you know. And the other big drug, attention. You know, and, uh, you know, as a 14-year-old kid, you know, anyway, so we were like five. The, the, Andy had two friends who I met also. So we were like a five-man group that we, we called ourselves F Troop. And, you know, we would take group acid trips. And Now you're telling me about group acid trips with Andy Kaufman in New York in, what is this, the early 70s? No, we're talking the 60s. In now. the 60s? We're talking, we were like the first generation to take acid. And, you know... One of my friend's brothers, who turned out to be one of the most eminent brain scientists in the world, was the first one we knew who took acid. And he, he said, you know, this is the shit boys right here. And so, you know, we're talking 1966. I saw Jimi Hendrix play at the Cafe Wa in New he York was, when he was still Jimmy James in the Blue Flames the night before Chaz Chandler found him. Hold and, a second now. Well, we've uh, all heard about Cafe Wa because of Dylan. How big was that place compared to? Well, let's put it this way: the Cafe Wa had an open door policy. I mean, they had great people, and they also had bands like I had, the Fragment of Love, and we sucked, you know. <laughs> But, you know, I would go by the cafe one, and we had heard about Jimmy, you know, and, and but he was like, we just see him walking around the village, you know, like when we were on acid and we knew he was on acid, you know. And so one night- Did we he said, look like Jimi Hendrix? He looked like Jimmy fucking Hendrix. Did, did other black people look like Jimi Hendrix? No. Back? So no, he was, he looked no, like a rock star. He was known as the crazy spade. We said, let's go see the crazy spade. I hear he's really good, you know, and that, you know, that, Lovingly. that it, it's not a racial, it, right. it was a sign of hipness, yeah. it, you know, I mean, it was like, instead of saying Negro, you know, <laughs> at the time, he said, anyway, so I saw him, he was unfucking believable. Okay, well, he, he was Jimi Hendrix that night. He was Jimi Hendrix, he was doing Hey Joe exactly the way he did it. Wow. He did the Wind Cries Mary, and the two guys in this band were spirits. Randy California and Ed Cassidy. Anyway, it's like it was from me to you, really? Jimmy standing there, and uh, that I, you know I said, well, he's playing at the same little pisshole I'm playing at. He's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I've been to Los Angeles. I know there's a lot of gigs there. I think I'm going to move out of New York if this is my competition. <laughs> I got to go somewhere where I can. Earn while I learn. And that's exactly what I did. I went, you know. To, what, what kind of music were you playing? I, well, I was playing whatever kind of, but basically my basic shit is like Rolling Stones, kind of Otis Redding, mm -hmm. 
Um, R&B. R&B, but rock and roll. Right. But not not like, you know, uh, you make me feel so bad. You know, yeah. more like, you know, Otis. Right. You know, but but also with course, I mean, I, I've had a lot of pop songs. I wrote a lot of pop songs that people did. And, like what? Uh, I, I had a a song called Tonight that was a big hit in England with Joe Cocker. He did six of my songs. And uh, there's this other song called Stop. Oh, you stop, stop. Which was in Bridget Jones' Diary, the third hit version of it by Jamelia. It was originally done with this chick, Sam Brown, who I wrote it with, and Joe Bonamassa also did it. Nice. So, you know, I had a lot of uh, Percy Sledge. I mean, some of my idols, because I love Percy Sledge, yeah. you know. He did two of my songs. Dolly Parton did one of my really? songs. Yeah, I got a lot of covers. I made a lot of money as a songwriter for a while. That's for where the money is, life. right? Well, yeah, that's, that's what it is. I got rid of that shit as soon as I got it. What do you mean? Oh, you spent the money as soon as the check yeah, came in? Yeah, as soon as I got it. What would you spend it on? Whatever. <laughs> you know, a life, to, a wild life, especially for two people yeah. or more, takes financing. Sure does. Know? And, you know, I really, I, I'm 72. I figured my expiration date was about 64, maybe. So, like, I didn't really plan for my retirement. You know, so, but, you know... Money is, is, is just a tool. It helps you do what you want to do. Right? Now, I hear from Michael over here that you played with Dylan yeah. on the Infidels tour. Yeah. My favorite album of his. I, I, love, I love that gig. Bob Dylan, you know, my idol, who I sort of became friends with for a while, you know. And um, Mick Taylor, my favorite rock and roll guitar player in the world. Former Stones guy. Former Stones. Also Ian McGlagan, former Stones. Also. How about Mark Knopfler producing that album? Did he, yeah, did but he I, go on tour I, with I you guys? I didn't work with, with Knopfler. We just did a live tour and we made a record called Real Live with Bob. And was, was Sly and Robbie the- We worked the, with the... Glenn Jones. Oh, yes. So the great producer. that was a different thing. But, you know, the Infidel session, I mean, that Mick was living and working with Bob for like that year. And Infidel is one of the greatest records. And you know, we did we did Joker Man. A really good version of Joker Man. And okay, I, which I gotta ask you about. But one the, of my one of my favorite songs. The best shit we did. But hold on, hold on. Yeah. When you first hear Joker Man. Yeah. Are you instantly blown away or are you like, Ugh, I don't know, Bob, what the hell is this all about? No, I, I think Joker Man is like a riddle because it's a yeah. Joker Man. And I always listen to Bob's shit more than once or twice. So, but I mean, some, some shit, like the first time I heard All Along the Watchtower, it was like, wow, this is a very mysterious song. And it just had this air of mystery. And I sort of said, what, what, you know, it's like a parable, you know, but. It didn't really hit me until Jimmy's did it, really. I mean, I, I love the song, but, mm -hmm. you know, when Jimmy did it, it took it up another level. And then when we wound up playing it live, I'm doing, Bob's doing the Jimmy version. 
You know, with Mick Taylor playing, I, and to me, like, that was just so ironic. That's how life is. Yeah. You know, one thing, and that's how, how music and art are. One thing feeds the next, yeah. and another guy does this, and you go, hey. You so, so mix on guitar, what are you playing on this bass. tour? Bass. You're playing bass on this tour. Yeah. But the bass sort of has to always be supportive. Mm -hmm. Like, especially in this kind of music, it's like, you don't go to a Bob Dylan show to hear the fucking bass player, you know. After like after three or four days, I was walking with Bob to to the backstage area. And I said, "Bob, so uh, everything okay? Like in the bass?" And he said, "Oh, I hadn't noticed." <laughs> I said, "Well, that's just fucking great, right? You know, if he hadn't noticed and he likes the sound, that's right. We're there. That's the kind of instrument to me that bass is." Because he changes the arrangements so often live, and yes. He's got the right to do but, that. But, we but, but are you in tune with that? Does he oh, yeah. practice that yeah, with but, you guys? No, he did, we did it the way we rehearsed it, even though we would stretch out and stuff. But we had a certain style. It was like the Stones playing with Bob Dylan. And Mick Taylor really influenced it. And that's what Bob wanted. And I mean, the versions of Tombstone Blues and uh, Highway 60, we would always open with Highway 61. And it was like, almost like... Uh, a, a Chuck Berry version, like the Stones doing Queenie, right. opening Get You Yaya's Up, yeah. was that kind of thing, and it fucking rocked. <laughs> and it rocked every time. It was a long fucking version. You know, every, and I'll, I'll tell you, that was the, pr the proudest I ever was to be an American, was like, standing on stage with Bob, July 4th in Paris, playing Highway 61. That was like, they could have shot me right then, you know? And also, you know, it's really the only time I was ever aware of being proud of being an American. Hmm. Not like that Donald Trump song, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, I love Americans, I love the English, I love, you know, I love a lot of fucking people. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know. So, so okay, in rehearsals with Dylan, yeah. does he have notes for people? He might say from time to time, hey, uh, how about, how about this, you know? Yeah. But most of the time you just play it. And I mean, sometimes Bob would go like, uh, like when we were on stage, he'd go, uh, he'd start like Maggie's Farm in the wrong key. Oh. And then... It, he, you know, come over to me and say, hey, Greg, what key are we in? <laughs> I said, well, Bob, we're in G, G. That's where you started it. But, and he goes, it was like a kid. He goes, can we go to the real key now? Uh, you know, uh, you know it, was, uh, it was like. So he's not, a, he's not a micromanager. Not at all. He's, he's, he's really a hippie. He's so fucking loose. He's beyond a hippie. Right. He's like a hipster. Yes. You know, and, uh, yes. and he's. You know, I mean, he's been doing this all his life. Right. And he does it, you know, he's sort, and he's changed. He's chameleon-like, but it's always him. And he's yeah. the greatest songwriter who ever lived and Absolutely. the greatest American poet.
Are there any other uh, big names that you uh, toured with? Well, let's see. I, I was Rodney Dangerfield's band leader for a while. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, um... Who I hear, I've never heard a bad story about Rodney. Rodney was a very interesting guy. He was just a very interesting guy. And, uh... What, what year, Rodney, are we talking? We're talking about the, like, early 80s, when, when Rodney was first on top of the world. Yes. See, Rodney loved Andy Kaufman's character, Tony Clifton. Yes. The, the fake nightclub. Hey, uh, uh... I will survive, you know, that kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of guy, you know, in a, in a peach tuxedo, you know, and it's Kaufman, but it's like the exact opposite of Kaufman. Yeah. So Rodney loved this character so much that Clifton would open for Rodney, right? And which, which Clifton? Tony Clifton. The, first, the real one. The first Clifton, Andy. You know, well, not, wait, wait, wait. So the, it's Andy as Clifton? Andy, well, and... Tony, the, Tony Clifton was a different guy, okay. but he was Andy. He was one of Andy's manifestations. If you notice, Andy had many manifestations. He'd come at it, a schmuck, foreign man who talk like this, and all of a sudden he's Elvis. Right. You know, and it's like, and then it goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is the real me, and right now, may I have my clothes back? Uh -huh. You know, so he would like, you're already seeing four guys, and it's like 15 minutes have passed. Anyway, so Clifton... There, there were two Cliftons. There was the later Clifton after the, the one that Andy proved that he and Clifton were different guys right. one night by bringing out uh, this other guy, Bob Zamuda, who was his partner in crime, right. who played Clifton. And did, I did shows with Zamuda as Clifton yeah. while Kaufman was alive. And Kaufman would make sure to like have his picture taken like in New York, where we were in Tahoe, so we could keep the ruse up. Yes. But anyway, so because I was Clifton's band leader, I became Rodney's band leader. <laughs> and, you know, and Rodney liked me, and uh, so he said, "Hey, you, know, you want to come to San Francisco and play in the Warfield Theater?" You know. Great place. So I, you know, I started doing that. So that was great. Was Rodney a sad guy? Because I, I, I get the vibe that he, he was Rod never really happy. Rodney was. Rodney may have had a low self-image early in life, but Rodney was a very hip guy. Yeah. And he was enjoying the fuck out of being Rodney. You know, I remember the first uh, night right before the show, he like, he smokes pot out of a pipe, like, a, <laughs> like your dad's pipe. And he comes in and he's smoking his pipe. And, you know, I'm going, hmm. And he, he says, yeah, it's just some average shit, boys. <laughs> and he gives me a hit, and it's like this knockout fucking weed, you know. So he, and he, you know, he just, uh, he was very nervous. Like, as a comedian, like, it wasn't like, you know, right before going on stage, I remember once I pissed Rodney off. You play him on, there's like one more cue, and then he talks for 24 minutes. So like that particular night, I took a little walk during that 20 minutes, you know, backstage at the war field. I don't know, maybe I took some medicine, something, you know. <laughs> anyway, apparently during that time, Rodney like improvised, made a joke and turned to the band leader and said, you know, and <laughs> I wasn't there, you know, and I, he, I, you know, he probably said, see, I told you I got no respect, but he, <laughs> 
he'd shoot my ass out. Did he really? He's, you know, he became a completely different guy. Oh. He was going, look, you, you know, you fucking don't move, right? I expect the band, especially the band leader, to be there, you know. You know, he's doing this. He's going, I'm out there working my ass off, and where the fuck are you? You know, that kind of thing. And you know, I was I was mortified because I didn't think it was any big deal to him. But uh, you know, I, I stayed in place after that. Carnegie Hall. The, the, yeah, I, I was the conductor at Andy's Carnegie Hall show, the one where he took the whole audience out for cookies and milk. And <laughs> I later played myself in Man in the Moon. Uh, because, Did you? Yeah, because, you know, I, I was the obvious choice for the job. Wow. You know, he was such a big star. You know, he sold out Carnegie Hall, which, you know, in the old days was like the ultimate. Yeah. 5,000 seats? Yeah, something 8, like that. I think it's it's less. I think it's more like uh, twenty five to three thousand. It was great. You know, he wrestled women. He Tony Clifton came out. He opened with this. He had this. This uh, <laughs> was so funny. The Love Family, who were like, uh, uh, you know, eight children from Ventura. I forget, they were like the Osmonds, only like worse. <laughs> you know? And they came out, the opening to the show is the Love Family does Aquarius, you know, and he thought he'd do something nice, you know, and they come out and they do it and the audience booed. <laughs> I said, this is gonna be such a great night. <laughs> you know? They, they, they didn't know that this is all part of the show? No, the audience wanted to see something. They wanted to see Andy. They wanted to see like some, some they thought they were riding the spirit and they were right. Fuck the, uh, you know, <laughs> fuck this night. You know, we want to see Tony Clifton fuck with somebody. Or, right. You know, it was like a very hip crowd, you know. And yeah. Robin Williams was dressed as his grandmother, was sitting on the stage in a chair wow. in a pink dress. Wow. You know, unannounced. You know, just there. You know, I had to give him my gloves because he has hairy little hands. <laughs> and at the last minute, Andy realized that, hey, Grandma's hands are here. <laughs> so, and he goes, um, Greg, he's a very sweet guy. He goes, um, I have to ask you a favor now. This is like three minutes before showtime at fucking Carnegie Hall. You know, other people have, other, like if it was Rodney Dangerfield, he'd be doing something entirely different. He'd be working up a sweat and Andy's going, uh, do you mind if I use your gloves to give them to grandma? She has very hairy hands, <laughs> you know? But it, it was, yeah, it was not only awe. I mean, he was, cause I was used to Andy being sweet, but yeah. um, who notices that shit yeah. three minutes before the biggest show of your life? No fucking buddy, you know? Let me ask you about this because you you've been blessed to work with two absolute geniuses. Absolute geniuses. What and did a few you learn? Other near geniuses. What 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 have you learned about genius? Do you do you, do you believe in God that this was just a God given um, blessing or what? Well, I, you know, I think that 
these these are like big spirits, you know, and we all get our gifts from the universe, you know. But these are different. They're very brave. They completely went against the grain of where everybody else was going and from a very early time in life, you know, and they just had this gift and they believed in it. And there's always room for doubt. You know, there are always doubters, but these are like very, very brave people who also, you know, had something burning inside them. And, you know, do, do they believe their own genius or are they insecure about it? Do you think? I don't think they ever, I mean, I think, Bob knows he's a genius, but what is a meaningless word? He's Bob. He's inside his mind and he's always moving. So what does genius mean? Okay, I'm a genius. You know, there's plenty of geniuses riding the buses too, you know. It's, but but Bob knows he's better than Donovan. He knows well, he's good. Bob knows he's Bob. And right. uh, you know, I mean you can't ignore it. You know, when when the Eric Clapton's of the world show up and say, they said, okay, if I play with you tonight, you know, it's, but, but he knows he's great. And, you know, but I think that, you know, the best thing for an artist is both disapproval or mass approval. You know, one is motivation one way, one is motivation the other, and Bob's had both. Now, of course, he's, he's Bob Dylan, but, you know, murder most foul is the best thing ever written about the Kennedy assassination. And that includes any fucking document, anything Jim Garrison ever had to say, the Warren Commission, it's the most succinct, and it sort of shows you what happened to the generation. It's a total fucking work of art. There's a party going on behind the blessed door. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he just wrote it like two years ago. So in this apartment, uh, I see uh, a piano. Yeah. I see an organ. Yeah. Uh, I see one, maybe two guitars. I don't there's see. A, there's I, another guitar in there. I don't see any basses in there's, here. There's a bass upstairs. Um, you know, I'm not like. I guess my I, question is, do you practice? Oh, I practice all the time, but I, you know, I don't really practice bass that much. Uh, if I'm gonna go to a gig and play bass. I'll like listen to something and play along for a few seconds. Yeah, you know, for a few minutes, just to get my hands. Yeah, uh, doing the bass thing. Let Let me ask you about venues in L.A. Yeah, because I imagine you've played a lot of these. I've venues. played a lot of venues, a lot of venues that aren't there anymore. What you know? was? Let's Let's talk about the ones that exist right now. Okay. Of the ones that still stand, what are your favorites? Oh gee, I I don't really know if I really have a favorite. You know, and I, I haven't. I don't know what really exists. I'll tell you what's not my favorite, which used to be my favorite, is the Whiskey A Go Go. How come it's not your favorite the, anymore? Well, because it's a shadow of its former self. Yeah. It used to be like the showplace yeah. for rock and roll. I mean, you know, the people who played at the fucking Whiskey, also there was a place called the Roxy right up the street. Yeah, still there. Which it, the Roxy was a great place to play. I played there, but I saw, you know, Bob Marley. You were at that show? <laughs> Yeah, in fact, the one of the owners of the Roxy was my manager. Lou Adler? No, Elliot Robbins. Aha. Uh -huh. David Geffen's partner. And really? I, I, I played basketball with Lou Adler and Elliot and a few other guys a couple of times. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Is he good at basketball, though? 
Lou? Yeah, he's good. He's got his own court. <laughs> you know, he used to play with Kareem. Did he really? He made sure he was on Kareem's team. You know, That's they just smart. play. They play. You know, two on two or three on three. So your problem with the whiskey today is it's pay per play. It's it's, it's just garbage. I mean, the whiskey used to be this show place, and it sounded great, and it was just a, a cool crowd. And you know, I mean, I saw, I saw Little Richard there every day for two shows for a week. You well, know? You, you can't help but pay attention to Al Green because Al Green is as great as it gets. As great as Prince is, Al Green, even greater. Yeah. You know, uh, I got to meet Al Green. I wrote a song that he did but never released called Every Time You Cry. And it wow. was later a hit in Australia for this guy named John Farnham. But anyway, my friend Arthur Baker was producing them, you know, and I just love Al Green. I think if I had to take, go to a desert island and take one person's music, it would be Al Green. Really? Yeah, just for me, you know. Wow. Just because he's so uplifting and without a doubt, just a beautiful singer. Plus it's guitars, the high record band is yeah. just great. And the songs are just great. And they do have deceptive chord changes. And, yeah. you know, I even like Willie Mitchell's strings. You know, he had a certain way of. Anyway, that, that, let's, let's get back yeah. to the whiskey though, real quick. So when right. you're when you're seeing Little Richard there, is it sold out every night, or do people not? No, get it? it it wasn't. But this is very early. This is like 1969 or 70. Right. And I was going to UCLA, and I had this speed freak friend at the film school named uh, Earl, and Earl had gotten Little Richard's permission to film him like 20 in Cinema Verite. 24 7 you know or as wow. much as much as he wanted so earl recruited me to be his roadie you know because <laughs> i said if i get to see little richard and hang out in his dressing room like for a week i'm down yeah. you know you just pay my gas which was 29 cents a gallon and i'm there yeah. so you know and it, it was amazing you know hanging out with little richard for a week but Sometimes it was crowded, sometimes it wasn't. I mean, the whiskey got very crowded. I think Elvis Costello played the whiskey and I was there and it was like, you know, wall to fucking wall, you yeah. know. You could smell hormones. Back, back in those days at the whiskey, were the girls in the go-go cages? Yeah, the first time I went to the, but that, that ended soon. But the first time I ever went to the whiskey, I think it was Johnny Rivers was playing, yeah. who I wound up playing bass for for Did a you while. really? Yeah. I'm not bragging about it. You may as you know, well. No, well, not, not Johnny, not Johnny Ramostella. You know, I, I was got, it not a good? Uh, I got situation? nothing to say, good or bad, about Johnny Rivers. Hmm, you know? Trying to figure out what that means. You know, but I mean, he was okay. He had a certain recognizable voice, but yeah. you know, he was, you know, a privileged Italian son who got to do his thing at a privileged Italian nightclub. Right. Now, you know, he's like Frankie Avalon, but with blue jeans. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, in, in, the, in the, the, the bucket of rock and roll, especially the Sunset Strip, because yeah. that's what we're talking about, uh -huh. where does he fit in? 
I guess, I guess he's like one of the first guys. He, right. I mean, you know, because, and he had that, they did a real smart thing. Seventh Son was recorded live at the Whiskey A Go Go. Yep. They used to do that. And live records really sold. Uh, Cannibal Adderley had Mercy, Mercy Me out. It's a live record. I mean, these things. Anyway, so Johnny Rivers was smart. I'm sure Lou Adler was telling him what to do. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, it just made too much sense. But, yeah. and, you know, uh, but 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 we don't hear about Johnny Rivers anymore. Well, because he's not an artist for the ages. Right. You know, I mean, some guys are good, and some guys are, are for the ages. Yeah. Elvis was for the ages. Neil Young is for the ages. Yeah. You know? Um, did you see the Buffalo Springfield uh, back yeah, then? Yeah, I did. And, you know, I saw Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and... Uh, I saw a whole lot of shit, and the Troubadour was a great club. Yes, in those days too, and only in those days. Well, for a while, you know, because well, that broke Bowie and Elton John and yeah, the Eagles, I mean, and and before that, you know, guys like uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were playing at the, you know, as separate guys. You know, uh, yeah. Jim McGuinn and Bob was playing there, and it yeah. was like a folk haven. Yeah, and you know, and then it changed with the times, and the Troubadour was a great sounding place. So you were gonna tell me about a, a, a drug dealer. <laughs> no, he wasn't a drug dealer. He was my doctor. He, he was a lot of people's doctors. He was Keith Moon's doctor. Right here in Wilshire? He, he was. At the time, I lived in Santa Monica. Okay. I really wish that I had lived here because it was walking distance. It was on La Cienega, near Wilshire. You wish you were living by the beach, but you wish that you lived over here in Kathleen? Well, no, just because of this one thing. No, I, <laughs> I could have walked there, is all I'm saying. Uh -huh. you know? I mean, later on, he had already moved on. Anyway, this doctor, I, I would go in and see him once a month, and... You know, I couldn't help but notice Walter Becker, Keith Moon, Richard Manuel every once in a while. You know, it's the connection between these three guys, you know, dead, dead, oh. dead. But it, not because of this doctor. Right. But they, they were dopers just like me, you yeah. know, a lot of doper musicians, you know. Mm. And so I'd go see this guy, and he looked exactly like Sidney Greenstreet, uh, who was an old movie villain he was like about six three he weighed about three he was like obese and he would write the prescriptions on his stomach he, <laughs> he writes and he was like a, he was a jewish doctor <laughs> and i i would say well I, you know i need uh i need 30 quaaludes i need uh 16 ounces of hikinan cough syrup which is basically liquid heroin Ooh. You know, I think say, I need some of that. You say, okay. You know, I uh, say, uh, also, you know, the Percocet. <laughs> you know, Percodan. Yeah. You know, so, you know, for my pain. And, <laughs> and um, you know, occasionally I'd get like, you know, some kind of speed to, you know, Dexedrine, you know, Desoxin. That was it, Desoxin. I love Desoxin. <laughs> anyway, and he would do this, you know, 
And you pay them, it was cheap, you know, it was, for the time it was more expensive, but it was like, I don't know, 30 to $50, something like that. But then. Oh, wait, wait, 50 bucks got you all that? Yeah, because 50 bucks in those days is 300 bucks now. But, but the doctor but also no, got no, a then cut, I have though, to, right? I have to pay for the pharmacy and everything. But oh, so it's 50 bucks to he get write the prescription. Me prescription and okay. the appointment just to get in. So he also had this other thing going. He had a guy named the Orange Man. One of the reasons, like, Keith Moon was hanging around was he was waiting for the Orange Man. This doctor sold uh, ounces of pharmaceutical blow to those in the know. This was right around the corner from here. Yeah. Now, this is a secret. I mean, nobody knew about this except for the rock and roll insiders, you know, but... This guy would show up and he'd talk like this. It was, you know, it's one of these guys, you know. The orange man. He did the orange man. And he'd have a, a paper bag from the market with oranges, you know, one of the, inside the, the the lace thing, right? And on the bottom, of course, is the you know, the ounces of blow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he'd come in, hey doc, what's up? I brought you some oranges. <laughs> You know, and then, like, you know, the orange man would leave. Keith, it's your turn, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I think they made Keith wait a few minutes after he you know, first, you know, he, he sat down and waited in the waiting room after that, I noticed. Why do I find it hard to believe that Keith Moon could stay still for that long, knowing well, I there's think an it was, it, was a, it, it shocked me, too, but there he was. It was, you know, it was early in the day. So, <laughs> you know, it was like, we're talking noon, one o'clock, something like that. So maybe that. he hadn't gone to sleep yet. Maybe not, or maybe he just, you know, just knew he had to get up, and his roadie had gotten him to the doctor's office, and... He had, you know, it's probably half asleep. This, it, you not know, after he, not after the orange man. Came. No, he's wide he awake after that. Half asleep. I imagine very good cocaine. Pharmaceutical. How much does an ounce of pharmaceutical at coke? the at the time? It cost eighteen hundred dollars. Me wow. and me and some, but you know, you think about it. I mean. I mean, if you were dealing it, and we, we weren't dealers, you know, but if you were dealing it, you could cut it up 10 times yeah, and sell it, you know, for whatever. But me and my friends all chipped in. We, we, I knew four or five guys who went to this doctor. We all chipped in like, you know, 425 bucks or whatever it was yeah. and split an ounce of pharmaceutical Coke five ways. And it was like... It was like pink coke. You, you just do a couple of lines and you're good for hours, mm. you know, and like that. But, you know. Uh, Is this how people get addicted? Yeah. <laughs> they get the really good shit and they always want to chase that beautiful high that they have. That's how people get addicted. Right. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I, you know, I was addicted for almost my entire adult life until now. So, you know, to different substances, mainly the. You know, I mean, being a, I can't imagine what it would be like to be addicted to quails. I was habituated to all these others, but heroin, you know, that's another story. Look, and, look. you know, the thing is, is abdication of responsibility. I don't want to deal with it. I'm going to get high, blah, 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 blah. And then after a while, 
I got no choice but to get high. You know, I used to like do dope and then I clean up to go on tour, you know, and, you know, do whatever other drugs were around on tour, but it was no big deal. But after a while, that becomes an impossibility. And then you go, well, you know, I got no choice. So Orange Man is what, 1970, 1971? Yeah, no, 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 it was later than that. It was, uh, we're talking about like uh, the later 70s. Okay, you were also doing dope at that time too, right? Occasionally, but what I, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I... I but, but here, here's my question. Reading uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers books and Jane's Addiction, yeah. those guys in the 80s were, were scoring in downtown L.A. Yeah. Is that where you were scoring your heroin back no, then? No, I didn't have to score in downtown L.A. I had, like, the primo dope connection of all time. When I was playing in the band Tommy Two-Tone, Really? Their manager introduced me to a guy who lived right in the neighborhood here. Hold on. Jenny Jenny? Yeah, Jenny Jenny. You were playing that tune every night? I joined their band right before it became a big hit, and I used to always remind them. I said, you guys were nothing before I came along. <laughs> you know, I just got the gig, and then boom, the single happens, you know? So I was... where, where did you guys play on that tour? We played all over the country. Because it was a giant hit. It was a giant hit. We played, like, everywhere. We played Universal Amphitheater. Right. Headline Universal Amphitheater. But, Bass. Be before the roof was on, Universal. Yeah. yeah. No, no. The roof was already on. The roof was it, on. It was, like, 1981, I guess. Okay. Something like that. But, you know, we did that. We, we spent the best tour we ever did was we opened for ZZ Top at the height of... <laughs> Of their, you know, when they were really like legs you know, and all that, legs and sharp dressed man oh, right. and eliminator know, and tour. It was Texas. It was just Texas, which you know they're from Texas. Yeah, and Texas is the craziest state as far as <laughs> you name it, especially groupies. It, you know, and ah. we played every city in Texas and some twice, right. and so that that was great. But uh, and I, by the way, ZZ Top very notorious for their consumption of things and yeah, they were definitely, their lifestyle. you know, they had it going on. But anyway, the manager of the band, whose name I won't mention, introduced me to a guy who became not only my lifelong friend, but my lifelong connect. Huh. And he, he had uh, this shit called China White, which is not like the brown shit you buy downtown. It was pure dope. This uh, the Grateful Dead wrote a song called China. Yeah, China White is yeah. like the Where's best. Where's China Cat? Scorpions. Scorpions. They also have, you know, Jerry Garcia wrote a song called Midnight the Mission, which is about, you know, that subject. But anyway, so, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I would go to this guy, and he was the kind of guy, you know, like usually, you know, you go, like Lou Reed said, the only thing you learn is that you always have to wait. You know, because the man would come when he wanted. This guy, if I was five minutes late or didn't look right, he would like harangue me. So where you been? You're supposed to be here at eight. It's eight oh five, man. You had a you prompt know. drug dealer. I yeah, who was you know you couldn't really tell he was a drug dealer. He lived in a in this kind of neighborhood in a nice place. Sometimes he manage a building, something <laughs> like that. You know, and he was like, as far as you could tell, a straight Jewish guy. But on the side, he has this incredible China White. And he was, you know, strung out like a dog. Oh. But but still, he made a fortune. 
you know, off people like me, mm-hmm. you know, but, but, you know, he was also my friend and, you know, he, he gave me deals, but I mean, you don't, ex- it takes financing. To, for for those of us who've never done heroin. Don't sorry, do it. Don't do it is what you're saying. Don't do it. Okay. It's a waste of your time. Really? Well, you know, it, I have to say, it wasn't a complete waste of my time. <laughs> Big smile. Biggest smile I've seen coming out of you right now. Well, I think it's funny. But okay, but here's my question. I say, honestly, since, I do. since you but brought... I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go near heroin again. Okay. Period. Don't even, you know, don't even take a taste. It's not even a taste. I don't even think about it. I wouldn't even take a Good fucking pill. Good for you. You know, and especially now that heroin... Half of it is fentanyl. Right. And fentanyl, I, I tried fentanyl too, you know. So, you know, I mean, I was addicted to fentanyl. It's not something you want to, you know, th- if you're not ready for it, you know. I mean, I was an experienced drug user. And the first time I smoked fentanyl, I said, whoa, this stuff is strong. And then I said, boy, if this rush doesn't stop soon, they're going to be calling a fucking ambulance for me. And that's somebody like who's already been addicted for 30 years right so you know but i hate talking about well I, you know we'll look at it on the william burroughs uh, level you know but you're also educating us yeah that's right What advice would you give for people who are trying to quit heroin? I would say call NA. Find somebody you can relate to in NA. Mm-hmm. And they might be the fastest help. Because if you try to quit by yourself and you're in the life, it's just never going to work. You need somebody to intercede on your behalf. You need to be able to at least you know, spend four or five days chilling out and that might take you might need a friend or a doctor to help you with that because that's a bitch you know and then call na mm-hmm. and that's what they do two questions about mr lou reed who you've brought up okay waiting on the man yeah and heroin yeah are those the epitome of of the feeling of being on heroin and waiting for the heroin. Well, you know, n- not to me, you uh, know. There's better but, songs? No, I don't think there are any. Uh, there are some songs that unintentionally, <laughs> you know, re- refer, like, just as a sidelight to heroin and paint a picture of life. Um, I'm, You know, I don't know this for a fact. Okay. You know. But I mean, but heroin is, I mean, great song. It's my life. It's my wife. You know, that's the, the strung out part. And Waiting for the Man is like a great fucking heroin song. So, right. you know, I mean, I, I, I. Because you're nervous. You're, 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 you're in a, in a well, part, part of town you're not supposed to be it's in. It's very truthful also. He never comes early. He always comes late. <laughs> the first thing that you learn is that you always have to wait. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty snappy fucking line right, right there. But there are other songs that paint a heroin lifestyle that aren't necessarily about heroin. Uh-huh. You know, some some of Steely Dan's best songs, I think, reflect that. 
some of Bob's songs, Blonde on Blonde, I think, you know, like I said, I don't know this. Right. This is just my conjecture. But I think that whenever Bob mentions the word rain, as in, and Louise holds a handful of rain, tempting you to defy it. Look at you. You know. Thank you. So, you know, that, but it's about Johanna, right? It's about the visions of Johanna who is either gone or dead. Yeah. You know, and, but it paints like this whole other circus picture. But part of the circus picture, just like in a William Burroughs novel, A Handful of Rain, you know. First song of Blonde on Blonde is Rainy Day Women. Yeah. Everybody, everybody must, must get, get stoned. stoned. Yeah. But that doesn't sound like a heroin song to me. No. In I fact, think it almost sounds like a parody it was of like a party a, song. It's like a pot song. I think they did it in 10 minutes. Right. And then realized it was a single. It's the stupidest single it sure Bob is. ever had out. But you know what? People love that song. People love that song. And we, he plays it all the time. We on played tour. it on uh, as an encore with Eric Clapton, Van Morrison, Chrissy Hine, <laughs> Carlos Santana, and we're playing Everybody Must Go. And you know it wasn't bad. Good people love it. You know, it's how I feel about Elvis Costello when he does Pump It Up at the end of the show. I it's like, like it it's up. like this is such a throwaway. But like you any know, band could but have you played know what? You know what's hard? I mean, a song like Pump It Up, I admire Pump It Up because the hardest thing is to write a rocker. Right. That's just a fucking rocker. Yeah. And the chorus delivers. Yeah. You know, that's what the Stones are really great at or were really great at. That's right. And Pump It Up is like that. You know, Pump It Up. <laughs> Because you really don't need it. <laughs> That's the hardest kind of song to write. Right. The Clash wrote those kind of songs. Yes. You know, I mean, rockers. Buddy Holly wrote those kind of songs. Eddie Cochran, Summertime Blues. Yeah. Those songs don't come along every day. No. I mean, you know, Feelings and, uh, you know, Barry Manilow, <laughs> you know, Mandy. You, people write those songs all day long. But, you know, writing like Summertime Blues, now that's something. Are you a yeah. fan of ACDC? Yeah, I love ACDC. Because they're based in the blues and they know how to they write are, those no, rockers. They can rock. They're unbelievable. Yeah. Angus, unbelievable. I mean, you know, they. I liked him more in his schoolboy, but he still sort of looks the same. He's still in the schoolboy outfit. <laughs> and he's a great guitar player. I mean, For that sure. guy is a great guitar player. Yeah. And he grew up in fucking Australia. Right. So, you know, but there's a big music market. I, I sold some records in Australia, so, you know, I've got nothing bad to say, but I love ACDC. Greg, we love you. All right. And thank you for uh, sharing these stories with us. And I've been here in the neighborhood for 30 years. Wow. So, you know. So you actually went to this diner, the Johnny's Diner, when it was serving I food. I did before it was burning. It was terrible, by the way. It was bad food? Johnny's Diner was terrible. <laughs> it was so fucking greasy, <laughs> you know. It's the kind of place like, you know, you might be drunk at Molly Malone's, <laughs> go down the street to Johnny's Diner, wake up with a stomach ache the next day, you know. <laughs> the greasiest hash browns that ever were. But it's too bad, you know, it's too bad Bernie didn't get to run for president because they were going to be the Bernie Sanders headquarters in L.A. And yeah. That would have been great all the way around, you know. Yeah, he's a young man. He's still got time. Bernie. <laughs> Give him years. Him and Keith Richards. That's right. They still have decades. God bless you. Thank you. All right. How great was Greg? 
You know who we'd play bass for on their Infidels tour? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony Jordan, here's a single of the Spice Girls. Here's a nice meal at Cantor's. Here's tickets to see Dylan at the Pantages this summer. Every donation you hand over helps keep this insane project a-rolling. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Grinke, Ben Welsh, Henry Furman, Jen Adams, The Lonely Chair, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, and Dougie Gyro. Want to hear your name at the end of next week's show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and get till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you have to do is PayPal us 25 bucks or more, and we will list you in the Here in LA website that Mark Johnson is just putting the finishing touches on right now. It'll be there forever. You'll also be given a note to denote how early you got in to make this dream come alive. Angelino number one, Allie Miller. Number two, George Wright. Three, Rita Joanne. Four, Jason Sutter. Five, Grant Houghton. Six, Rob Baker. Seven, Kev Chang. Eight, Brenda Garcia. And nine, John Griffiths. Just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. And you're basically allowing me to have as much time as I can. So when somebody says, you want to talk to my neighbor, I can. Now, want to help to support us, but your royalty check got stuck in the mail? You can still help Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Post two. They're free. Tweet something nice about us. In fact, anytime you see me tweet about an episode or put something on my Facebook, either retweet it or share it. Your friends will think, oh my goodness, my friend is cultured. He's, he's retweeting an incredible, incredible post about a man who grew up with Andy Kaufman. None of my other friends have done this. Tell your friends how Here in L.A. is spelled, and then it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify. Here in L.A. is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who can play any of the 1970s or 1980s Dylan tunes on his trumpet, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Oregon and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and Michael for being cool enough to tell me that his neighbor Greg would be down for this. Oh!